feeling a little uh, merciful and gracious today? Uh, merciful and gracious enough to hear an old joke that maybe you, you've heard before? Um, kind of set us up for this thing. There was this uh, son-in-law who had a very negative, critical, hypercritical father-in-law. Not that you could identify with any of that. But no matter what he did, he just couldn't impress this father-in-law. You know, he always found flaw with everything that this son-in-law tried to do. They were both avid uh, duck hunters, however, and that's the one thing they could do together. Well, the son-in-law had to get a new duck uh, for duck hunting, and so he was shopping around, and he came across this ad, and he went to visit this guy, and he said, yeah, I really like the dog, but your price, I mean, you're, you're charging three times more than anyone else. He says, oh, you, you don't know. You don't know about this dog. He says, I'll tell you what, come with me today. We'll go duck hunting, and if you don't want to make the price, pay the price for that, no problem. Let's go together. So they go out, they're, they're hiding in the blind, and you know, there's water, and ducks are flying over. Bang, they're shooting ducks, ducks are dropping down in the water, and this dog takes off to retrieve the ducks, runs right across the top of the water, stands right on top of the water. This goes on all day long. This dog walks on the water to retrieve the ducks. Well, the guy at the end of the day says, you got me, man. I'll pay three times as much for this dog in a heartbeat. He's thinking, I got something now for my father-in-law. Let's see how he deals with this. Well, he invites him to go hunting, and uh, they go out together. Sure enough, they shoot ducks. Ducks hit the water. Dog runs across the face of the uh, top of the water, doesn't sink in all day long. He's walking on the water. At the end of the day, the son-in-law says, well, what do you think of my new dog? And the father-in-law says, can't swim, can he? <laughs> Why do I look for fault in others? There are people... Uh, you know them, maybe you are them, who have a, a tendency, it's, it's almost something they can't control, to find the weakness, to find the chink, to find something wrong, to find the flaw, to find the speck in everything and everyone. And it can be very draining, frankly, to be around people like that. It's more draining to be a person like that. So why do we do this? I mean, why do we look for fault in others? And, and this is not something unusual, even though you may not be one with that particular struggle. It, it is not an unusual struggle. It, it's something, frankly, that goes on an awful lot of the time. We don't even know we're doing it. We, we're just assessing people, but we're always finding their weaknesses, their chinks, their specks, their flaws. And so why do we do this? Well, there's a guy named uh, well, actually, before, before we go there, let, let's, let's go to Scripture. Let's let Jesus talk to us a little bit about this. So if you don't mind, turn in your Bibles to page 1098, and it'll be Matthew chapter 7. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount where we were at last week as well. And in chapter 7, we're just going to read a few verses, verse 3 through 5, and again, it's 1098. And uh, I'll, I'll do a little explanation in the first Two verses, but then it's the third and fourth and fifth where we really want to get you to. All right, Jesus starts out. He says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For by the standard you judge, you will be judged. And the measure you use will be the measure you receive. Now, this has created some confusion. You know, some people that have never read the Bible in their life, they all seem to know this verse. Don't judge me. You're not supposed to judge me. You know, and that's not what Jesus meant. The Bible 
emphasizes clearly that we are to discern right and wrong behavior in ourselves and anywhere else. So obviously you have to use judgment for that. In fact, the Corinthians were condemned for not judging issues amongst themselves. So that's not what Jesus is talking about. No, he's talking about a condemning, hypercritical attitude. The next verses that we'll read make that explicitly clear. So, you know, just to clarify that. Now let's go to verse 3 where I was really trying to get you. Jesus says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but fail to see the beam of wood in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye while there is a beam in your own eye? By the way, in Jesus' day, I'm told this would have been hilarious. The rabbis in Jesus' time didn't use these kind of you know, metaphors, and this was pure humor. Doesn't do so well today, but it did in Jesus' day, evidently. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye while there is a beam in your own? You hypocrite. First remove the beam from your own eye. Then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And we're going to look at that portion of scripture, uh, that particular principle more clearly. That, that once the beam is gone from our eye, we actually can help someone else with the speck that is in their eye. Until that time, we actually cannot. Obviously, you've got a four by six in your eye. You can't see, was Jesus' point. So, the principle there is pretty clear. Take care of our own faults, failures, weaknesses, chinks in our armor, defects, inadequacies, before we go looking around, examining, listing out, mentally or verbally, the weaknesses, flaws, of others. It's pretty clear. There's a Christian writer and a pastor. His name is John Burke, and uh, I especially want to talk a little bit about him in a minute, but he says this. He says, judging others is what? It's fun. Judging others makes you feel good, and I'm not sure I've gone a single day without this sin. He goes on to say, some more things, and I didn't want to put it all on the screen, so let me just read it to you. He says, I watch the news and I condemn those idiotic people who do such things as that. Most reality TV shows are full of people I can judge as sinful, ignorant, stupid, arrogant, or childish. I get in my car and I drive, and I find a host of inept drivers who should have flunked their driving test. And I throw a little condemnation on our Department of Public Safety for a good measure. At the store, I complain to myself about the lack of organization that makes it impossible to find what you're looking for, all the while being tortured by Muzak, you know, that M-U-Z-A-K music that plays in the stores. Who picks that music anyway? I stand in the shortest line, which I judge is way too long, because look, people, it says 10 items, and I count more than three of you with more than 10 in your baskets. What's wrong with you people? And, and why can't that teenage checker, what is that she's wearing anyway, focus and work so we can get out of here? And then he closes by saying this. Judging is our favorite pastime. If we're honest, but we're not, we're great at judging the world around us by standards we would highly resent being held to. Judging makes us feel good because it puts us in a better light than others. Well, that's at least one reason why we tend to look for fault in others without even being conscious of it sometimes. 
But I want to go a little further with this because I think that the reason we have this problem or one of the major reasons is is something much more fundamental and spiritual. It's something about this world that we live in that is so utterly abnormal and yet we've lived in it all of our lives and so we're not even aware of how abnormal it is yet our spirits respond to the abnormality. Let me show you where I'm going. Here's the world we live in. It is a world of scarcity. Okay, if you have something, I don't know if it's going to be enough for me. If you're getting attention and admiration and love, I'm not sure that I'm going to get admiration and attention and love. There's scarcity. We're not sure there's going to be enough for our needs. At the same time, vulnerability. We live in a world where I know I'm weak and fragile, and I can't really get everything that my soul longs for. So that that bothers me. Thirdly, it's a hostile world. Hostility. I live in a world that's very competitive. People are trying to struggle to get for themselves. And in that process, they very well may take from me or push me down so that they can rise up. And we know this. This is the world we live in. This is the world we breathe in every day and count as normal. What else could we do? We've been born into this. But it's not normal. It's not normal. And, and our souls, our spirits designed in the image of God, they, they react to these and there's a repulsion that sometimes can turn into this, this tendency to find fault with others. Here's the world we were made for. We were made for a world where there's abundance. No one ever lacks anything they need. No one ever lacks affection or respect or any of those kind of things. Nobody has to fight for it. There's abundance. There's plenty for everybody. We were meant to live in a world, instead of vulnerability, immortality. That we're not threatened, we're not in danger, where we don't know the emotion of fear. We were meant to live in a world, instead of hostility, a world of love, where everybody we meet is our brother, our sister, our best friend, who is for us, not against us. We're meant to live in a world where you can walk down any street, any time, and you're safe. Never lock a door, never have a lock, period. That's the world our our souls and our spirits hunger for but that's not the world we have we have a world of scarcity and vulnerability and hostility and therefore we're kind of put into a defensive without knowing it a defensive posture and in as part of that defensive posture we size one another up and we size one another up from the standpoint of what are your weaknesses and how do my strengths you know, compete with your weaknesses. We, we don't think this through. It's kind of an automatic response, but it's a reaction to an ache, an existential ache in our soul for the world that only Christ can bring. And so, if nothing else, when we find ourselves fault-finding, we might want to pause and say, you know, this is, this is a spiritual reaction. It's indicative that there's an ache in my soul for a life that cannot be had by just man that only Christ can bring. So this is part of the reason, at least, a a kind aspect of the reason, but we have to be realistic. There's also an unkind reason or reasons that we tend to have this fault-finding attitude. Um, The book of Titus uh, in the New Testament says these words, Apostle Paul writing to Titus, he said, He said, everything is wholesome to those who are themselves wholesome. It's the idea that if my motives are pure, I'm going to put pure motives or tend to put pure motives on you. I'm not going to put the worst construction on what you say. But nothing is wholesome to those who themselves are unwholesome. In other words, if my motives are not pure, I'm going to assume yours are not. I'm going to be defensive against you and who have no faith in God. Now, the last part is where I wanted to bring you. Their very minds and consciences are, what is the word? 
diseased. You see, one of the reasons that we might look to find fault with others is that our minds and our consciences are diseased. They're sick. They've been battered. They've been broken. It can happen in all kinds of ways. Some of us are quite innocent, but truth be told, we were brought up in families where this was the practice of everybody in the family. You know, everybody would go out about their ways, and then they'd come home and sit at dinner or whatever, and they would just rip to shreds everybody they had been around that day. Multitude of reasons. Some whole families for generations are negative like this. And so you're a child, you're being brought up in that environment. It's just kind of natural that you sort of take on the same attitude where you're always looking for the weakness, always looking for fault in others. Now, there's no mystery to some of this. Some, some of the reason that we tend to look for fault in others is that we can't cope with our own feelings of inadequacy, inferiority. We feel like we don't. Uh, measure up we're, we're fearful we're going to be rejected or judged or we're fearful that you know we're not going to be wanted or liked or loved or admired or respected and so when we can cut others down when we can find their weakness when we can find their flaw it has this this sinister way for a short time at least of making us feel a little bit better about ourselves but it doesn't last and it just makes us sicker it just makes our minds and our consciousness more diseased. That is where disease is interesting because if you take it apart, it's, it's dis-ease. The person who looks for fault in others regularly, spontaneously even, automatically, I can tell you as a person that has no ease in their own soul. They are miserable. It is inherently a miserable condition. You cannot be looking for fault in other human beings and be at peace and be joyful and be fully human and fully alive the way God intended us to be. Again, think of what we were made for. We were made for a world where we're looking for good in others, where we're looking to bless others, and we're looking to to comfort and to care and to serve others, not looking to find their weakness and flaw and exploit it in order to make ourselves feel a little more adequate for a short time or a little more valuable or whatever it may be. But sometimes this is what it's about. And I would urge some of you right now that if you were brought up in very negative environments and you suspect that you may have this disease where you look for the fault in others, not even meaning to, it seems almost automatic, that you maybe just start considering some of the factors that may have made your soul a little bit sick. And frankly, folks, we've all got some soul sickness That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need His unconditional love. That's why we need Him to teach us the way and the truth and the way life was meant to be lived. Once we return to Him in trust, then we all have a lot of growing to do, a lot of changing to do, and He lovingly, kindly moves alongside of us as we're willing to be humble and honest and open about these particular weaknesses and flaws we have. We all know that The very first step of ever getting healthy to get rid of dis-ease is we have to become aware that we have a disease. We have to become aware of our condition. We have to own it before we can ever start to move past it or get healthy. And when it comes to this tendency to look for fault in others, until I, until you see this, become aware of it and own it, we're not likely to get healthy. And i got to tell you, uh, early in my Christian life, I became very aware 
of this tendency in myself. It was most uncomfortable. And I wish I could tell you that it just instantaneously went away, but it did not. I mean, it took years for me to cooperate with God and monitor my own soul and, um, and be willing to deal with this. But awareness is the first step. We can't get healthy until we acknowledge we're sick, until we own it. So I want to ask some of you right now, have you ever considered, is it possible that that you might have this condition Jesus is talking about where without even knowing it or thinking about it, you're always looking for the speck in somebody else's eye. You're always looking for their weakness, always looking for their flaw, always looking for the chink in their armor. And you feel almost compelled to express it to somebody. That is indicative. That's symptomatic of a disease. That's the red lights on the dash of your soul going off and telling you there's unhealth inside you. Unhealth that that needs God's methodology to heal. Don't feel condemned. Don't feel bad. When you go to the doctor, you don't feel condemned or bad. If, if he finds a, an illness, you're glad so that it can be healed. And so I would urge you to, to feel the same way. Now, James is going to give us some scripture that tells us a little bit more about why we do this. Why do I, why do I look for the flaw in others? James says, but, but if in your heart, it all starts inside, if in your heart you're jealous one of the reasons we look for fault in others is that we're jealous of them. They make us feel inadequate or, you know, inferior or some way. Or they have something we want and we don't think we're going to get it because they have it. If in your heart you're jealous or bitter, some of us look for fault in others because we are full of poison inside. We're just full of bitterness. Now, frankly, this may not be altogether our fault either. It could be that some some thing occurred in your life you were terribly hurt terribly wounded it was unfair it was awful it was wicked you did not deserve it and you were hurt deeply but you haven't processed that hurt in the way that God wants you to so that you can be healthy and the result is bitterness you're you're, you're angry now you you have low-grade anger if not more than that nearly all the time so you look at everyone through angry bitter eyes uh, God wants to heal that condition as well. But sometimes we look for the fault in others because of jealousy. Sometimes it's bitterness and sometimes it's just pure selfishness. You know, we're sizing up the other person in a way that we can make sure that we get what we want out of life. That we make sure they don't block or take from us what we want. We're in a competition. It's not the way we were wired. It's not the way we were meant to live. But we find ourselves sort of unconsciously comparing constantly with others and competing with others, often feeling awful about ourselves, which often leads us to rip another person to shreds so that for the moment we feel just a little bit better about ourselves. So these are some of the reasons that we do it. And James goes on, if I could go back there. He says, don't sin against the truth by boasting of your wisdom such wisdom does not come down from heaven. It belongs to the world. It is unspiritual and it is what? Have you ever met these people that, that they'll tell you they're wise? You know, I, I tell you, I can talk to a person for two minutes and I can see right through them. I just know people and I can tell you what that person. How many of you ever met people like that? They pride themselves on having this almost spooky wisdom to read people. <clears throat> but I've noticed something about these people. When they see right through somebody, they never see anything good. <laughs> they always, always, always see bad things. 
Never have one of these people saying, yeah, I see right through people, and gee, she's such a wonderful, unselfish person. Never met anybody. Oh, no, 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 no. They always come across with this unique wisdom, but it's wisdom to find the speck in somebody else. It's wisdom to criticize and to tear down and to tear apart somebody else. So it's like James says, it seems to be wisdom, but it's actually a demonic wisdom. You see, the demons analyze human beings and look for our weaknesses and our chinks in our armor so that they can hurt us and frustrate us and keep us from God. And so these people usually look at people in a, in a very, very negative light. There was a study done uh, at the University of Toronto, and it was also done uh, simultaneously at James Madison University here in Virginia, about the potential we each have for blind spots, regardless of how intelligent we may be. And they put it in a very awkward sentence. Uh, they called it, cognitive sophistication does not attenuate the bias blind spot, which simply means no matter how smart you are, you still may have a blind spot for your personal bias. That's all that's, all that's saying. It concluded that we cut ourselves more slack than we give to others. It goes on. In the New Yorker, Jonah Lehrer, commenting on this study, uh, he explains why we do this. When considering the irrational choices of a stranger, we see their biases from the outside. However, when assessing our own bad choices, we tend to engage in elaborate introspection. We study our motivations and we search for relevant reasons. We lament our mistakes to therapists and ruminate on the beliefs that led us astray. Our biased blind spots are largely unconscious. In other words, being smarter won't help you see your own junk. Now, the important thing about this is that we deal with ourselves gently and sensitively. We say, but, but you know, I might have done that. I might have said that. But, but my motives were good. If you, you know, I know what my motives were good. But when somebody else does something, we say, that's an evil person. They wouldn't have ever said that about whatever it is, the way I look, the way I talk, what I did. They're bad. They're evil. Because we're judging from the outside. We're, we're biased toward giving ourselves slack, being extra hard on others, which causes us to always be looking for that speck in the other person's eye. There's a professor named David Livingston Smith, and he talks about how dangerous this can be. This, this tendency, this thing that Jesus spent time on in the Sermon on the Mount, this tendency we have to look for the speck in another person's eye while we have a, a four by six beam in our own eye. It's not a small thing. And he kind of puts his finger on it in this book that he calls Less Than Human. He explains that even ordinary people, you and I, ordinary people, can demean, enslave and kill other human beings. You're thinking, no, 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 no. That's impossible for me. And I hope it's true. But he goes on to say, it all starts with one important ingredient. The dehumanization of the victims. You see, when Jesus was talking about seeing that speck in another person, this is the start of it. We start criticizing them. We start cutting them down. We start looking at their flaws intensely, their weaknesses. And we're slowly but surely stealing their value as a human being which then justifies any further action or response we may have toward them because they don't matter as much they're they're not not human they're not made by christ and for christ all of a sudden they're they're bad they're defective he goes on he says thinking about your enemies in subhuman categories is a way of creating mental distance of excluding them from the human family. It makes murder not just permissive, but obligatory. We should kill vermin or predators, 
When we slap a dehumanizing label on people, and this goes on all the time in the media today, so be careful, Christian. Guard your soul. When we slap a dehumanizing label on people, it is much easier to strip them of their dignity and do what? Mistreat them. We may not murder them, but once you start finding all the flaws in somebody, the way you and I are wired, we're very logical beings. It gets easier to mistreat somebody. And so Jesus wants us to understand this is the red dash lights showing up in our soul. If I had this habit or tendency to be looking for the speck in another person, the red light is going off and saying, I am diseased. I am sick inside and I need Christ's healing. Let me give you something to think about. We go to the doctors, and we go to the doctors uh, pretty much without shame or fear. I mean, maybe we're fearful of what's going to happen, but, you know, we know the doctor is going to find out what's wrong with us. Uh, the doctor is going to look, uh, look at us, so to speak, with kind of a critical eye, but we don't worry about that because we know the doctor is looking to find what's wrong with us because the doctor wants to help us, wants to heal us, wants to enable our life quality to be better. And so the doctor views us not like this illustration of Jesus with an eye to find the speck to condemn us, to judge us, to hurt us or wound us, but to help us. But then there's the prosecutor. The prosecutor looks at someone to condemn them. The prosecutor has already made up their mind, you're guilty and I'm just gonna find the evidence in everything you say or do that you're guilty. We all know this experience. Once we turn towards someone, we feel, feel that they're either not trustworthy or we don't like them. It's easy to find flaw with everything they do, to put the worst construction on all their motivations. The prosecutor does that, looks at people with a scrutinizing eye to condemn them. Or, or maybe the critic, you know, the critic goes in a restaurant or goes to a movie for what? To enjoy a meal or enjoy the movie? No, to criticize it. To criticize, it's looking for the weakness, looking for the flaws. And all it's going to do is list them out. It's not going to praise <coughs> the environment. Or maybe, maybe we look at people with the eyes of a judge. A judge is sizing people up. Do you pass or not? Are you guilty or are you innocent? But what we need are the eyes of a doctor. So let's pause for a minute and let's ask ourselves. What lens do you, do I really, truly look at people through? Do I look at people through the lens of a doctor? And if I see their flaws and their weaknesses and their deficiencies, it's, it's because I want to help, I want to comfort, I want to cooperate with God in blessing and building them. I'm not condemning them. I'm not going to uh, or manipulate them because of their weakness. Do I see them with the eyes of a doctor or do I see them with the eyes of of a prosecutor, I want to find flaw. I want to condemn them. Or, or with the eyes of a critic, I, I want to just slice and dice and rip and tear and find every flaw and expose it to others. Or, or the eyes of a judge, I, I, want to, I want to condemn them or set them free, but I'm still scrutinizing them. Can you see the difference, the huge difference? And, and folks, it's, it's a choice. It's a choice. I learned this way back many years ago that, that I needed a shift in the way that I viewed people. And so give your soul a break, but take this word from Jesus seriously because we often have this tendency to look for the speck and ignore the beam. Now, 
this is an interesting image that Jesus gives to us. So why, why is it so important that we get the beam out of our own eye so that we can help take the speck out of our brother's eye? Uh, what is Jesus saying? If we were to summarize or contemporize what Jesus is saying, it might sound something like this. Focus on my faults instead of those of what? But it's not nearly as much fun. <laughs> and it takes a lot more work. But it's a lot more beneficial. Focus on my faults. I have faults. You have faults. And Jesus wants us to know that we're still loved, we're still forgiven, he's still with us, he's not disappointed, he's not angry, he'll never leave us and forsake us. He wants as the great physician to bring healing to our soul, but he cannot bring healing to my soul unless I am willing to own my faults, become aware of my faults, and then start working with him to deal with my faults and stop looking at the faults of others, which is so enticing and fun and and easier than looking at my faults. And it can make you feel good for a short time. So, what could I do instead? Instead of looking at the speck in other people, what could I do to focus on the beam? The beam in my own eye. Well, let's look at a few scriptures. James chapter 4, verse 11. It says, my brothers and sisters, do not assault each other with what? Criticism. It's kind of strong language. And James just makes it real simple. He says, you can stop this. God wouldn't tell us don't do it if we didn't have the ability. So God is saying, you can do this. You can stop assaulting each other with criticism. There's another verse. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, rid yourselves. Whose responsibility is it? Rid yourselves. It's my responsibility to rid myself, and it's your responsibility to rid yourself. God doesn't tell us to do it unless we're able to do it. We are to rid ourselves of all, first of all, malice. Now, that's a word we don't use very much today. What it means is having a secret ill will toward people. I, I like seeing bad things happen to people. I like seeing people fail. I like seeing people humiliated and made to look stupid. I, I kind of get a sinister joy out of it. That's what malice is. And it's saying to us as Christ followers, if you see this thing in you, this, this is a disease. It is like a cancer. It, it needs to be ripped out, cut out, and you can do this, it says, Christian. Rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy. Jesus said the person that's looking at the speck while they have a beam in their own eye is hypocritical. It says, rid yourselves of all hypocrisy and envy. Often the reason that we tear other people down is we secretly envy them. We're jealous of them. We want what they have or what we think they have. And then I love this, this last part. So we're to rid ourselves of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and of all the ways there are of speaking against people. There's multitudes of ways, aren't there, of speaking against people? And some of them are very subtle, and they don't, they don't show how dark our soul may really be. But we have ways of saying negative things about people without it sounding too negative and critical, but it is. Now, I want to balance this a bit. You say, Randall, are you telling me that, that you're never supposed to find a fault in anyone or anything? Of course not. We, we have a, a, a value in our church, and it's that 
Excellence honors God and inspires people. And because of that, we are constantly scrutinizing everything we do and trying to get better at it. That necessitates looking at things critically. I look at myself critically because I want to grow. I want to improve. And so I'm not saying turn off your powers of of understanding and seeing things, but turn them off toward others unless, unless you're sure the beam is out of your own eye. I'll never forget when I was back in my construction years, <laughs> uh, hanging drywall. I had this guy one time, I got something in my eye real bad, couldn't get it out. And I had this guy, he said, oh, I'll help you. And so he literally took his drywall knife and he put his dirty handkerchief over it and he, he's going from my eye. And I'm like, no, no, you gotta be kidding me. Well, he said, okay, okay, man. So then he came to help me again. He's trying to help me, mind you. And he had his carpenter's pencil and he was going at my eye with that. And he didn't even have his dirty handkerchief over that. And I'm like, no, thank you, but no thank you. And here's the deal. Once I work on me, my faults, with God, here's what happens. First of all, I, I, I become aware it is not an easy thing, even with Christ, to get healing to my soul, to rid myself of a lot of these flaws and faults and sins. They take time. It's sloppy. There's two steps forward and three steps back. That tends to make me humble and patient and tender. It also gives me experiential wisdom. I know what works and what doesn't. I know what kind of processes you have to pursue. I know how long you have to pursue them. And it it puts me in a place where the beam is now gone from my own eye, but in the process of getting rid of my beam, you got to hear this some of you, your soul changes. You become tender. You become humble. You become wise. And you can look at people with the eyes of a doctor, not a critic, not a prosecutor, not a judge. And they'll know it. (laughs) You can't fool people. They'll know it. They'll know it when you want to rip them, and they'll know it when you want to heal them. And God intends us to be a community of healers. These words in... um, well, before I go there, let, 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 me, let me give an illustration of uh, one way we can develop this is, is by trying to cultivate empathy in ourselves. There's a doctor uh, in Germany. Her name is Rahel Eckhart. She's in Berlin. And she was concerned about young medical students and the way they would treat elderly patients. So she created this suit. Uh, how do you train 20-something medical school students to feel genuine empathy for senior citizens? Enter the age man suit. This is real. You can look it up online. This thing weighs about 22 pounds, and I'll uh, give you some details about it in the next slide. Consisting of ear protectors that stifle hearing, a yellow visor that blurs eyesight and makes it hard to distinguish colors, knee and elbow pads which stiffen the joints, a Kevlar jacket-style vest which presses uncomfortably against my chest, padded gloves, the, <clears throat> the age man suit weighs around 10 kilograms, which I'm told is 22 pounds, has been a custom made or has been custom made to simulate the physical consequences of old age. Her hope is this. My aim is to turn young energetic people into slow creaking beings, temporarily at least. That way they will, I hope, develop a feeling for what it's like to be old. Only once we have their empathy can we really begin to win students around to becoming interested in old people as patients. Uh, until we are willing to try to cultivate empathy, we're going to be easily 
kept in this habit of finding fault with other people. We've we got to just ask ourselves at times and ask the Spirit of God to help us. You know, what does it feel like to be them? What might be the reason for this problem in their life or that problem? We do that with ourselves. We need to learn to cultivate that with other people. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says, don't let any unwholesome, here's the expanded by what unwholesome means, don't let any foul, profane, that's profanity, worthless or vulgar words ever come out of your mouth. Now God doesn't tell us that if we can't do it. We, we can stop these words coming out of our mouth. But only such speech as is good for building up others according to the need and the occasion so that it will be a blessing to those who hear you speak. Be kind and helpful to one another, tenderhearted, compassionate, understanding, forgiving readily and freely, just as God in Christ also forgave you. So here's what we can do instead. We can focus on our own faults and we can cultivate empathy, tenderness toward others. But it won't happen unless we first deal with our beam because it's dealing with our own beam and the struggles that connect with that that make us tender and more patient and give us wise experience to work with others. Let me close with a story that comes from a guy named Gordon McDonald. He's a pastor, been around a long, long time. And uh, he had heard some people in his congregation talk about the degree of, of uh, unconditional love and healing empathy that existed in the AA group that they were attending. And so he wanted to visit firsthand and see this for himself. So McDonald uh, explains the experience as he went. He said uh, as he went there, he noticed a lady a new lady, her name was Kathy. He says, I, I guess that her age was about 35, but one look at her face, you could conclude that she must have been a Hollywood beauty at age 21. But now her face was swollen, her eyes were red, her teeth were rotting, her hair looked unwashed, uncombed for who knows how long. And then Gordon McDonald says, Kathy stood up. This was her first time at the meeting. And here's what Kathy said. She said, I've been in five states in the past month, she said. I've slept under bridges on several nights, been arrested, raped, robbed. By this time, Kathy started weeping. I don't know what to do. I don't want to be homeless anymore. Now she's sobbing again. I can't stop drinking, crying harder. I just can't stop. I, I can't. Next to Kathy was a rather large woman named Marilyn. And... She had been sober herself for about a dozen years. She had dealt with the beam in her own eye. And so she reached out with both arms and she pulled Kathy close to her and hugged her. And McDonald said, I was close enough to hear the words that Marilyn quietly spoke in Kathy's ear. And Marilyn said these words. She said, honey, you're going to be okay. She saw a woman in need of hope, in need of love. In need of feeling like she mattered to somebody. Honey, you're going to be okay with, you're with us now. We, she said, we can deal with this together. All you have to do is keep coming. Do you hear me? Just keep coming. And then Marilyn kissed the top of Kathy's head. McDonald speaks. He says, I was awestruck. The simple words, the affection, the tenderness, how like Jesus this was. I couldn't avoid McDonald says, the troubling question that morning, could this have happened at the places where I worshiped? In other words, Gordon McDonald was saying, could this have happened in my church? Could it happen in FCF? Would you be Maryland? Let's put it very personally. 
If there was someone in this condition, this broken, this desperate, this hopeless, would there be the the room, the space in your heart, in my heart, the capacity to, to understand their greatest needs, to give them hope, to try to comfort them, to try to love them, and to understand they're going to walk a really tough journey to ever get healthy and whole. Because you've been through a tough journey yourself, like Marilyn, 12 years, to get healthy and whole. And so you're going to deal with this person. You're going to give them respect, and you're going to give them tenderness. But you're going to be the one. Jesus isn't going to have to worry in this church about somebody rallying to bring comfort and healing to a broken person because he's got you, and you know it. You know you'd pop right in. You'd jump right in because you've taken the beam out of your own eye. It's a really important question for us to ask. So, would there have been, let me rephrase that, would you be, would I be, a Maryland to someone this obviously broken, this easy of a target to criticize and to want to avoid? Which would we be, the person that assesses their brokenness or the person that runs in to try to do something about it? It's a really important question. So, this morning, if the Spirit of God has nudged you, made you feel a little bit uncomfortable, that just maybe this is a condition that you have this tendency toward always finding the speck in other people's eye, but never dealing with the faults, the beam in your own, you don't have to stay that way. You, you can start today to say, by God's grace, I'm going to start dealing with this today. I'm going to start owning This is a disease in me, this propensity, this tendency to always be looking for the fault in others, to rip other people up, to cut them up, to cut them down. And today it stops. Today I'm going to start working on this. Today I'm going to start working on getting the beam out of my own eye so that my heart, my life will be changed, that I can actually be a person um, that could bring healing and help to others. I'm going to start this day by God's grace. And I'm going to work on this every day to look at people with the eyes of a doctor I'm going to stop being a judge. I'm going to stop being a prosecutor. I'm going to stop being a critic. Today, it stops. I'm going to stop trying to make myself feel better by ripping someone else to shreds. And when I catch myself doing it, I'm going to remind myself I'm probably dealing with my own bitterness, my own jealousy, my own envy, my own feelings of inferiority and inadequacy. And I'm going to go to Jesus to get those things fixed. I'm not going to rip somebody down anymore. It ends. It ends today. And if you're here... And you've had this tendency. It might be because you've never returned to your creator, Christ, in trust. Until we return to him, we don't have a sense or a feeling of stable value. We don't have assurance of unconditional love. We have no assurance of a hope for the future, for the world that we've always looked for. The scripture promises, though, that if we're humble and intelligent enough to return to our creator, Christ, to put our trust in him, to become his follower that he not only forgives us, he gives us eternal life, and more importantly, his spirit starts to help us to get the beam out of our own eye and start to become fully human and fully alive and that person that we always wanted to be, the person God always intended us to be. So are you here this morning and you really have understood for the first time you need to return to God to put your trust in Christ and become his follower? That's the start of your healing path. How about the rest of us? Do we need to deal with a beam in our eye. It's okay. A loving God brought us here so that we can understand, see it, and deal with it. Let's pray. Father, help us 
not to run, help us not to hide, help us to do the hard work of acknowledging the condition of our soul that your grace, your truth can cleanse us and then use us to be beautiful, wonderful people in the lives of others. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.